All right, we're live. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are here today. This is a podcast that focuses on all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on who's on and how you roll. But today, my special guest is Casey Gooding. Casey, welcome to the corner. Good to have Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today, my friend. I've been Good wanting to, to have you. you on here for a little while now. Um, so this is a recovery podcast. We like to delve into your past and see who you are, where you're from, where you were born, and then work our way up and see, you know, what happened. Yeah. And then what happened after that, how the recovery portion works into your life. So, so who are you? Well, my name is Casey Gooding and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is 11-29-2012. I have a sponsor here locally. His name's Christian S., wonderful man in San Clemente. Mm-hmm. Helped save my life. Awesome. I also have a home group called Black Friend Only, and we meet on uh, Saturday mornings in San Juan Capistrano. Awesome. Um, so you are originally from what state? I am originally from the great state of Michigan. I am from uh, the Lansing, East Lansing area of Michigan, which is the capital city. Okay. And I know that you just uh, frequented the Midwest as well. Yes, and, it was uh, very cold. You were not used to that weather. I actually, I grew up in Utah, but it, it was a diff- different type of cold in Utah. It is a different kind of cold in Minnesota and Michigan. Correct? Yes, yes. Uh, get those uh, winds coming off the Windy City across the lake. Mm-hmm. A lot of snow, a uh, lot of seasons. I had the uh, privilege of going back to Michigan uh, just a few short weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, participating in a lot of recovery-related events, meeting with other professionals within the state, Nice hosting a sober tailgate at the Michigan-Michigan State game that was awesome. So if people are watching the podcast uh, today, I know my friend Duke Rumley at Sober AF Entertainment will be hosting a uh, another tailgate sober tailgate sober af sober af and okay. it and it stands for exactly what you think it would be okay good and, i like uh, that they'll be hosting a tailgate at the university of arizona versus arizona state game in tempe this weekend so a uh, great opportunity for people in recovery that are uh, looking to go out and experience college football amongst other events uh, to you know get onto the website and see what they're up to i love it yeah. i love it so growing up in Michigan, did you have any siblings or anything like that in your childhood? Do. I come from, uh, you know, a, a suburban middle-class family, as mm-hmm. one would say. Okay. Uh, parents are still um, married, living happily here in California and in Florida currently. Okay. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, neither of which was afflicted with the disease of alcoholism or chemical dependency in the same way that I was. Okay. And... Uh, Growing up, like when did you first, was it just alcohol? Was there other stuff in the mix? It was mostly drugs for me. Alcohol always played an exhilarating uh, role in my life from uh, probably the time in maybe about eighth grade, you know, started smoking pot, uh, ditching class, doing all the stuff that young kids that are um, recreationally using uh, substances are doing. And Mm -hmm. it uh, certainly took a, a deeper role in high school. Uh, with use of harder drugs, participating in rave culture, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of um, different things. I mean, it was a very So the raves thing. were happening then? Yeah. You know, I was uh, a graduate of high school in 1998. Mm-hmm. So if that ages me just a touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was uh, quite a thing and a culture uh, for our area back in the 90s. Absolutely. Okay. So, so in in starting off with drugs i mean was there alcohol in the mix too i mean were you were you yeah drinking? there was always alcohol there's always there alcohol. was always it was alcohol. essential everything always started with the budweiser okay all right, right. 
So nothing ever went very much farther without that first drink. Right. Right. And, but once I had the first drink, it was game on and mm -hmm. I was pretty much up for anything. Okay. And so in my younger years, you know, cocaine and, uh, uh, you know, uh, marijuana and rave type drugs such as ketamine or ecstasy were, mm -hmm. you know, favorites. Right. Um, and as I continued uh, my use, uh, the introduction of opiates became um, extremely relevant in my life and became the overwhelming uh, priority for me, mm -hmm. um, you know, which led to, uh, uh, you know, it led to uh, my bottom essentially. So let's back up for a second here. So, yeah. so when it comes to raves, I, I mean, I did a lot of raving. Oh yeah. Here in, in Los Angeles and California, um, there was a lot of stimulants in the mix, obviously with, with ketamine and, ecstasy and uh, probably some meth in the mix or cocaine and things like that. These are uppers. Yep. This is the stuff that's supposed to stimulate us, make us happy, make us go out and do the love drugs and, and enjoy ourselves being that dance culture and dance uh, type of mood to where, where we're having a lot of fun. How does, how did it switch to opiates? Like why, why opiates? Yeah. So, um, you know, in addition, ecstasy was kind of, this thing where the main uh, part of the drug was the MDMA mm -hmm. and they would cut these pills with multiple different kinds of sure. things, you know, and yeah. sometimes meth would be a part of that. And mm -hmm. sometimes Adderall and sometimes heroin, heroin may be a heroin. part of it. Yes. And, you know, in all the times, you know, I enjoyed the ecstasy that would provide me that uh, euphoric feeling, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere right between life and death. Sure. And that's where I like to, you know, not really, not really knowing it's between life and death. Yeah. We're not really knowing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, probably from before I knew it was going to be, uh, part of my, um, you know, everyday life. Um, you know, I enjoyed the effect that was produced on, uh, on the opposite side of, of a stimulant aspect mm -hmm. actually. Um, so much what, later was this, on, was this in your early twenties or was yeah, this, this was in the early twenties. Okay. Yeah. And then later on in my, in my late twenties, that's when the introduction of Oxycontin became, uh, relevant in our society and certainly in my life. And how, um, how did it become, uh, was it introduced into your life through a uh, prescription medication or were you getting it, uh, no, it was a social aspect of my life. Uh -huh. It was something that people were doing recreationally. Right. And like uh, Oxy 80s. Yep. I mean, it started with Percocets and Vicodins and mm -hmm. just popping a couple of those and having some drinks and feeling a little better. Right. Um, and then, you know, it progressed to Oxy 20s, 40s, 80s. Right. And, um, you know, to the point where we were crushing them and snorting them and, Ever uh, smoking them during that? Yes, yeah, smoking them. Ended up shooting them. You know, as my t disease progressed. So, uh, the idea of smoking a pill—like, did somebody just say, "Have you ever tried smoking this?" Is that? I mean, why? Why would you do that? Of course. I mean, any way that you can utilize a substance to get a, a deeper desired effect was something that we would always be interested in. So, right? plopping them wasn't working as well as if you were to crush them and snort them, or to. Smoke them. Smoke correct. them or eventually intravenously shoot them. Correct. Now, were you ever afraid of needles? I mean, was this, did you just think at that point, I've gone this far, I want to really feel like the major effect that's produced by this particular drug. And so I will now shoot myself with it. Yeah. So, you know, it's just really was part of the progression for me, mm -hmm. right? I had reached a point where obviously this habit is becoming more and more expensive. The effect that's being produced is less and less and less. And so I have to find 
new uh, ways to introduce the drug to my bloodstream that will create the desired effect that I want from this drug. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, there's some people that are totally just afraid of needles. They would never stick a needle in their body, right? So let me back up real quick. So, so throughout your 20s, were you, I mean, you're, when you speak, like you're educated, you sound educated. Did you, was there any college, any yeah, university? So, you know, there was a brief period of time between the ages of 22 and 28. Yes. That, um, you know, substance abuse had not taking, taken the role that it had in the ages of 28 to 34. Sure. Right. Um, you were you know, more I spent my 18th, yeah, I spent my 18th birthday in rehab and. Okay. So you know, rehab was already something that ha- had happened in. The end of your adolescence. Yeah, at the end of my adolescence, I spent my 18th birthday in rehab, and um, it was a futile effort, right? I mean, I well, what left, happened that you ended up there? I left. I left treatment, and it was homecoming at high school, and it was time to start doing what I was accustomed to. Right. But why were you sent to treatment? Were you were you drinking too much? Were well, you as using... a result of my action and behavior and my family's concern for my well being is why I went. You so know, your there was family a lot was... of behavioral issues associated with my drinking and drug use. Okay. At, at an early age, um, which led to you know issues in my classes, issues with my peers, issues in my relations. Okay. Issues with my family. And so so school as far as school even in your in your high school years you were declining, like not doing well because you were partying? Yes. I could, I just, I know you, you're my friend. Like you're so well put together to, to hear this. Like I can't imagine it, but I, I mean, I understand, you know, mm-hmm. in those times, those certain times, like um, we all had fun yeah. right? to a certain extent. At least we thought we were having fun. Our families didn't, weren't, weren't having fun with, with who we were becoming or who we were at the time. So, so they put you in rehab and that was short lived. That was short lived. And then, I kind of responded during an age. I mean, I felt uh, kind of a freedom uh, after I had moved on from living with my family and moved on from high school and moved into college mm. and, you know, had a, uh, I had essentially at that point in time, I had a group of peers that all partied and used drugs in the same way as I did. And we were able to make it by, you know, we, we had jobs and we went to our classes and we did enough to get by. And, you know, then I met a girl and, you know, we ended up getting married and having children and, you know, buying the house, having the cars, taking on more responsibility in my life, which didn't uh, allow a, a much of the um, uh, substance abuse uh, that I was accustomed to at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But what I recognized is, you know, I still want this party to keep going and the, the woman that I married wants to have a family. Right. Mm. And so the priorities were extremely different within the marriage, which um, in the end causes, you know, a divorce because of my action again, mm-hmm. uh, my inability to control uh, my drinking, my inability to stop once I start. And, um, you know, to be honest about it, you know, my ex-wife uh, has a father that uh, was absolutely an alcoholic and likely she wasn't going to stand by and watch her husband go through that. So in hindsight, she really made the right decision then. And, that was very difficult for me to understand, uh, but I, I fully understand that today. Great. So that period of, of time between 22 and uh, 28. 28, educated? Yes. Yeah, so I uh, am a hospitality business major. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to the local community college in Lansing. I worked for Michigan State University. I attended classes there, um, but 
again, my substance abuse did not allow me at that point in time to graduate with a degree from Michigan State University. Uh-huh. Um, but I do, you know, I'm educated in that aspect of an associate's degree. Okay. Now, down the line, you became a chef? I did. I worked as a chef at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. I was deeply passionate about that. Um, through my time, you know, um, in my early 20s, I worked as a corporate uh, management. I was doing training at stores throughout the country for a corporate restaurant chain. Mm -hmm. I worked as a, you know, kitchen manager, employing a lot of employees. And then I wanted to take kind of a break from that. So I got a job at Michigan State University, which was kind of the dream job. You know, you're in a union, you're working two to 10 each day, working at the four-star restaurant on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I really enjoyed that experience that I had there. Um, It allowed me to have a lot of creativity in what I did in my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was stable, structured, and, um, you know, it, uh, you know, certainly paid well in the time that I was there. So Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed uh, that experience of, of being a chef there at Michigan State. And how old were you during that time? I was between the ages of 24 and 28 at that time. Okay. So then down the line, when you started to get into the opiates, was that your demise? It was, you know, um, as stated previously, you know, uh, suffer from a progressive and fatal disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, overdoses. There were overdoses uh, from shooting it, from sm- smor- snorting it, smoking it. All of it. All of it. All of it. Yeah. In different instances, there were relap- there were relapses and overdoses mm-hmm. that, and that caused, you know, that caused overdose uh, in some very, very serious consequences for me. Uh, I recall one time, you know, um, being on vacation with my family near Traverse City, Michigan, leaving my family for work responsibilities to get back to work, mm-hmm. driving through Toledo, Ohio, you know, take some pills orally, don't feel the effects of them, take more pills. And the next thing you know, I'm in an OD in a hospital. I'm looking up when I wake up and, you know, I've got a breathing machine, a catheter in, and I'm strapped down to a bed. And. You know, I find out that I'm in Toledo, Ohio, and, you know, I know my parents and family are about five, six hours away from me, and I look over to my mom's there. Um, you know, I'd been in, you know, overdosed and in a coma for about 25 hours at that point in time. And I was in the hospital in a psych ward for a week, you know, figuring out how to walk again and rehabilitating and physical therapy, you know, only to find myself short time after that, within a week or two, you know, going back to using. To doing it again. Doing it all over again. Mm-hmm. And as a as a person in their young adulthood during that time when those those episodes would happen, did the thought ever cross your mind or, or occur to you that this is becoming a problem? I should probably or maybe clean up and get sober, or was that not even a figment of your imagination? Well, I think there is certainly that progression that you go through where you're in complete denial of this being a problem. Right. You know, I think the first time that I went to Alcoholics Anonymous or any 12-step fellowship, mm-hmm. I, you know, my back was against the wall. You know, I had to admit to my family, Hey, I've got a problem with this substance. Mm-hmm. And I went into a hospitalized detox. They took us to, you know, AANA, all the 12 step fellowships. And I remember sitting there and looking around the room and saying, you know, I'm not like these people, mm-hmm. you know, I still have two, have two cars in the garage. I've got a wife, got kids, all the stuff. I haven't lost these. You haven't lost all the, all the, mm-hmm. the, the and, but then I also stuff. remember that journey of going in and out of the 12 step programs mm-hmm. and then finding myself in a position where by the time I came back, I felt that there was no way a person like me could find and maintain recovery, mm-hmm. right? That I was now had reached a point that I was far worse than anybody that was in that room. Right. Right. In a short period of time. 
Mm. It was, yeah, it was uh, um, riveting. Okay, so what, how old were you when, how many times did you go to treatment throughout your life? Well, um, I went to the the incident, uh, the episode of care when I was 18. Um, and there were probably, you know, um, an additional three times where I actually went to residential treatment. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of this is throughout your twenties. Well, this is, you know, age 28, 29. That's when I start using Oxycontin. And then my life was really, really, really bad until I turned 35. Uh, and that's when I found recovery here in California. 35. 35. Yep. Yep. 35. You're really lucky you survived throughout those oh, late I'm, 20s. I'm 100% sure that if, uh, you know, my family hadn't made arrangements and um, supported me in the way that was required for me to recover, uh, that I would be dead. You know, there's probably a lot of people, if they follow me on Facebook or Instagram or however we're showing this and uh, that will see this. And, um, you know, there's a lot of my friends that, you know, I used to run with in, in Michigan that are no longer here. Right? They, they all passed away. They all passed away. Yeah. And I, and if you were to see me in my engagements with them, I was always the one that was far worse than everybody else. Kind of amazing. Yeah. I was the one who said, you know, were people that had really bad substance abuse problems said, Casey, you're really bad. Like, yeah. You need help. You taught right? them all. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. And I was the first, you know, I was the first one out of the people that, that I, you know, engaged with that really had the opportunities that I've enjoyed, mm -hmm. um, you know, that really come as a result of, you know, my parents' commitment before mine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my parents made changes that promoted my change. And uh, speak about that. Yeah. So, you know, like when it all came down, we've kind of covered what it's looked like up until that point. You know, I'm 34 years old. I'm barely keeping a roof over my head. I'm a daily IV heroin user. Um, you know, I'd been in and out of indigent detoxes and programs over the last three, four years. Mm -hmm. um, I would go into 12 step programs, get a sponsor, work the first three steps, stay sober to three to five months. And life would get really, really good for me. Right. You know, I would start having my relationships back with my family. I'd be the model employee to have, you know, see my kids. I would, you know, uh, restore hope in my relations with family members and loved ones. And, um, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword for me, mm -hmm. right? Because on one hand, I can uh, recover very quickly and good things can happen and life can turn all the way around in mm -hmm. a short period of time. But on the other side of that is I can burn my life down extremely fast mm -hmm. as a result of that first initial decision. And, without doing the work that, you know, we do in, in the program, you know, I really didn't have any defense against the first drink or the first drug. Right. Like I said, it always started with a Budweiser for me. Mm -hmm. So what happens to a guy who has a problem with heroin that doesn't think he has a problem with alcohol? Hey, you want to go have a drink after work? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I can have a drink. It's just drinking. It's, yeah, not, just it's drinking. not heroin. Yep. So I go and have two drinks mm -hmm. and then I start thinking in my head and it's like, can I go back to that 12 step room where everybody expects me to be sober? Right. What are they going to think of me? I'm a loser. This and this and that. Let me just make this call. Right. And then I'm, you know, shooting heroin and I'm smoking crack cocaine and, you know, I'm, I'm you know, engaged in illicit sexual activities with with all sorts of seedy people. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I can guarantee you at that point in time, nobody's tipping their hats at me. Yeah. Like they talk about in the big book. Right. right? Um, it's not a, it's not something a gentleman 
would do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would find myself in secession going through these relapses with restored hope and, um, you know, not doing the work that was required to recover. And so finally, you know, I had reached a point where I had been on a run for about a year and uh, my parents were living here in Southern California. They had moved out to California. They did because my dad worked in the auto industry in Michigan. That's a pretty big manufacturing industry for General Motors. Yes. And uh, he came out here and started working for an electric car company. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, is it odd or is it God? He came to an area that was extremely saturated, a lot of recovery here, a lot of great treatment programs, sure. a lot of people that, you know, families that have, you know, walked with their family members and recovered from this disease. And, mm-hmm. and so they got engaged with um, another family who was at their church. And, you know, my family sat down and they said, if our son dies, do we honestly believe that we can sleep at night knowing that we've done every single thing we could to help him? Right. And right in there in that moment, they just said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like if, if he passes away, which is highly likelihood, we'll never be able to live with ourselves if if we don't do something right now. And so they got involved. They found another parishioner who had a a son who was a year sober, who went through a treatment program here in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And they went to these treatment programs and they talked to the staff there and they, you know, toured the treatment programs. They saw the facilities, they met the people and they made an investment in their son. Right. And they took direction from those treatment professionals and they got involved in Al-Anon and they participated in every family meeting and they made hard, uncomfortable decisions that I didn't like, but were in an interest to support me with what I needed rather than what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Because what I want is to live on that line of life and death, mm-hmm. right? You know, in complete oblivion, not knowing how severe my condition is. And, um, and so all these changes that they had made provided them an ample opportunity and an ask where they could say, Casey, we've are now willing to help you, you know, and we're no longer going to do anything that hurts you, but we'll do anything to help you. Right. Right. Which to hurt me meant, uh, we'll help you pay your rent. We'll pay your car insurance. We'll, you know, when you need us to bail you out, we'll bail you out. When you need us to fly you somewhere, fly you somewhere. We'll, we'll do all these things. Um, you know, we're no longer going to do those things, Good, but we will support you in your recovery in any way we can. We've identified a good opportunity for you. And, So I'm sitting there in Michigan at 34 years old and I'm saying, well, do I go on to the bitter end or do I accept this help that my family is, is providing for me? Mm -hmm. And, you know, my decision at that point was, uh, the bitter end is, you know, I'm going to end up dead, which probably would be the best option for me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to continue living like this. I'm going to go to jail because I'm going to be doing criminal activity and I'm going to get caught for it. Right. Or I'm just going to be institutionalized. I'll be in that psych ward. I'll be in, you know, some some form of state care, you know, as a result of my, you know, alcoholism and drug dependency. Sure. Um, so I accepted that gift that they provided. I found myself on a plane on um, November 28, 2012, here to California. And you came to treatment. Came to treatment. Did you stay sober after that treatment? Okay, good. So you had mentioned uh, as far as them making an investment in, in what did you say? In, in your, me. In you. Yeah. The same thing happened for me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was in a treatment program, and um, my mom had finally like come on board. She did the whole the whole Al-Anon thing and all that mm-hmm. stuff too. But I remember that she had told me that the counselor said this is the best investment that you could make for your child, yep. for your son, for for him and his future, and as far as like finances and things like that, 
rather than dump all this money into him and all these other things that he keeps doing or taking advantage of, this is where he can get his life back and tr truly like that's what happened for me. So we have a lot in common when it comes to that. I really like that you brought that up. Um, and you stayed in treatment for how long during that time? I stayed in treatment for 60 days at, at a residential level of care. So show up at the airport, get off the airplane, parents pick me up, take me directly to treatment. Mm -hmm. Sitting in front of the uh, treatment center out in the patio, smoking a cigarette. Because mm -hmm. that's what we did back then. Yes. Not too many people never smoke cigarettes anymore. Smoke other They're things. all vaping. Yeah, we're all vaping. Mm -hmm. um, sitting there and, you know, right in front of me is my dad. And he's a man's man. You know, he's leader of the family. Um, mm -hmm. And he's crying. You know, and these are real tears that are coming down. Right. And... Um, and I don't have a lot of ability to feel or, you know, the reality is kind of uh, fleeting at that point in time. But yes. um, I do remember right then and there that, you know, him crying and telling me that he wanted me to have a life worth living. Right. And then we went in to do the intake and I had a clear understanding of what they were, you know, paying for me to be there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I recognize so they were paying cash. This wasn't insurance. This wasn't insurance, you know. They really were making a cash investment. Oh, yeah, they were, yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, for me, I felt that that was a lot of money for my parents to pay. Sure. Right? And so right then and there, I said, you know, not only in this aspect of this financial investment, because that's really secondary, but I knew right in there, then and there that I could no longer tell myself the lie. And the lie for me always was that this addiction is hurting me, but it's not hurting other people in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I get it. It's hurting me. You know, I don't have the opportunities. I'm 140 pounds, wet and warm boots, physically, mentally, spiritually. I'm bankrupt. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can rationalize and justify my action and behavior that doesn't hurt other people in my own sick, twisted mind. Mm -hmm. Right then and there, that game was over. You know, I recognized right then and there that I had a responsibility to myself and people that loved me and cared about me, that I was to take this opportunity that was, you know, given to me and make the most of it. I love that. I think it's wonderful. Um, so now at this point within that 60 day stay, obviously they're sending you to those meetings. Oh yeah. So you're reintroduced to good old, the, the good old AA. Right back, right? right? Right back to it. And I wasn't opposed to 12 steps. Right. You know, when well, I you already had some experience within the I past. did. And I seen, I saw a lot of people that were able to dedicate their life to the program mm -hmm. that had happy, usefully whole lives. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I had reached the point that I just didn't know how it would work for me. Right. And I never really was in a position where I was going to be committed to do the work. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you were 34 at this time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So interestingly enough, obviously, um, people who go to treatment usually are sent to 12 step meetings. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of them. Sometimes there might be some smart recovery or some refuge recovery and things like that, that some people ask to go to, or some places that have like a holistic track or something might introduce that idea too. But but um, I know that uh, anybody can can go into the twelve step world, and if they really give it their all and get honest with themselves and take the twelve steps, they could change their lives. I mean, it changes countless people's lives. Change we know that. Life. Change your life. Change exactly. Yeah. So 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 now that you were getting plugged back into that community, obviously, and it was probably a lot nicer to be in California as opposed to like Michigan and doing this this process, but. Um, was there a point in the beginning of your recovery where you thought, I want to use one more time or I got another run in me? Or did you make an absolute decision 
right from the get because you had mentioned like you knew this was a golden opportunity obviously yeah. that your parents had presented to you did you just decide i'm doing this 100 this, this time was different than all the rest yeah yeah it really truly was i mean all the rest of the time is the overwhelming obsession that um i just want to use one more time mm-hmm. that they won't find out that you know i'll only do it this day um I'll do these things. F it. I don't care. All those lies that I would continue to sell myself. They didn't happen this time. You know, I was really lucky. You know, I uh, went through the detox process. Then they started taking us to meetings Mm -hmm. and they'd take us to a men's meeting and then they'd take us to a CA meeting. Then they'd take us to an NA meeting and then they'd take us to a speaker meeting and they'd take us to celebrate recovery. So they would get you affiliated with multiple different aspects. So you could choose which one you want to go. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there was a little small men's meeting in, in Capistrano Beach, California at this point in time. And it's like 40 guys and we're meeting in a preschool room and you had to get there a half hour early and you had to smoke like way away because you can't smoke on the church property. Sure. And uh, the house manager would be like, okay, guys, we're going to AA tonight. That means you're alcoholic. You know, this is how you identify this and this and that. And we got there early. And they were we started, teaching you etiquette. They were teaching us 12 step etiquette. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'd get there early and we'd save our seats and we'd start talking to the people that were there. And, uh, you know, I went for one week and I met a few of the people and then I came back the next week and I shake those guys' hands and they say, hey, Casey, I'm glad you're here. You know, uh, you know, it was good to meet you last week. You know, have a seat. Coffee's hot. You know, uh, cookies are in the kitchen. Nice. You know, it's like, wow. So I remember sitting in that meeting and, you know, by this point in time, I had had an idea of, okay, it's not going to be at these other meetings where I'm going to find the person who's going to help me. Because it also at the treatment program, they're saying, hey, not only are you going to go to 12-step meetings, but you need to find a sponsor mm-hmm, to do mm-hmm. this 12-step work with. Yes. And so I remember sitting there, I'm like, man, I got to find a sponsor at this meeting. Now, mind you, most of those people in that meeting are in long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in there driving their BMWs and Mercedes-Benz up there. Right. You know, they're talking about their life with their children and their families and their jobs and all these things that seem so foreign to me mm-hmm. and so far away. Um, and, but most of all, they talked about a spiritual solution in recovery. And I could tell by looking at these men and looking them there and them looking at me in my eyes mm-hmm. uh, that they were for real that they were not joking and this was not some lie that they were telling me. Right. And, um, and so in that meeting that evening, you know, probably December 5th or something like that, I raised my hand in that meeting. And I just said, my name's Casey. I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I said, I have absolutely no clue how to stay sober. Mm. I was like, in fact, if I knew how to stay sober, I would not be here with you guys right now. Right. You know, she would have fixed me. The church would have fixed me. You know, uh, having this job would have fixed me. Seeing a therapist once a week would fix me. The fact of the matter is Mm -hmm. I've tried all these things and nothing has worked for me. Mm -hmm. I've tried them over and over and over and over again. Nothing. And so AA became the last thing that I was willing to do, Mm -hmm. but the only thing that ever worked. I love it. You got a couple of people that, let's see here. We've got uh, Aaron Spar. Casey is a man that I've learned so much from, but just watching and listening to him. Aaron just took five years. He did. Happy birthday, Aaron. From raves to sweater vests. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Love the new CD. And let's see here. Casey is half there. Oh, halfway there. They're using my lines against me now, aren't they? Oh, yes, they are. All right. Aaron's halfway there. He just got five years. Curtis's big loves to, exactly, to both of you. Um, So 
let's let's get into it. So obviously, like you took this thing by the horns, like AA became. I had no life. other. Op- I had no other option. I love it. I love yeah. it. This is what I what I love about you because I know I know the group that you're part of, right? Yeah, they're good men. Uh-huh. They're very good people. Like they're by the book. Like not print no, only. No nonsense. Mm-hmm. My type of recovery, right? And um, I also watch you. Uh, you're 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 admirable. The things that you do in the re- recovery community uh, stand out. They really stand out a lot. Uh, you have worked for a few different centers in mm-hmm. the past. You've done excellent work, exceptional work. You're known for that, right? Um, you present yourself very well. You're not that the person that, that had a bad reputation when you were out there. No, right? I, in fact, I went from braves to sweater vests. <laughs> exactly, just like you said. But you have you have this reputation in here too, where you are known to be a, a stand-up individual that really, truly—it's—it's uh, it's all about your blood, sweat, and tears that you pour this into what you do. Right now, you're currently working for a place by the name of Go Ahead Burning to, Tree Programs. Okay, and is what where is, I work? And yep. what is Burning Tree all about? So, Burning Tree Programs has been around since 1999. We care for the chronic relapser and their families. Okay, uh, these would be individuals that are treatment resistant people that have been to multiple treatment programs and not been able to maintain mm-hmm. sufficient recovery. Some of the story that I've told here today has to do with the family making changes to mm-hmm. promote the wellness of their loved one. Mm-hmm. And that's something that spoke to me about burning tree programs. We're really support. We're really committed to supporting the families and making a systemic change that will uh, create an environment in which the loved one can recover, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, this is a a trying process with our program. Our program is a long-term authentic treatment program. So based out of where? Based out of Kaufman, Texas, as far as our staple program is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, you know, our clients are doing eight to 14 months of residential treatment on a 2000 acre uh, ranch in Texas. So the majority of your clients are chronic relapsers, people that have just found it hard to stay sober, countless treatment episodes or centers that they've gone to. They just can't stay sober, right? Can't stay sober given sufficient reason. Yeah. We're talking um, the the most intelligent, the most highly manipulative, the the, the cunning, the baffling cases, mm-hmm. the extremely difficult, challenging cases, mm-hmm. uh, chronic level alcoholics and drug abusers. Yeah. When you're speaking with their families, hold on, Richard actually was saying, once again, so proud of your guests, courage from the heart. Um, when you're speaking to their families, does it bring up old stuff for you? It does. You know, I mean, I get an opportunity almost daily to utilize my experience, strength, and hope to. You self-disclose. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to support people in their journeys. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've sat on airplanes and got to talking to people and they're like, what do you do? And and I tell them and they're like, wow, I know somebody who needs some help from that. Yes. You know, I feel like in today's day and age, somebody out there that you know is suffering from mental health or substance abuse. and Probably more than ever, especially more than ever. the pandemic. Yep. More than said a lot of people going in different directions. Absolutely. People that didn't even possibly have alcoholism became alcoholics because it became something that, you know, being or, confined within the or house. Or at the very least, they've had an unhealthy relationship with the substance. Sure. Right? You know, we wouldn't necessarily deem them alcoholic. Right. But they probably could use some therapeutic mm-hmm. clinical support mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, align with them with their morals and goals. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
So why Burning Tree? Why did you end up going there? Yeah, uh, people ask me that a lot. Yeah. You know, um, in my uh, previous employment, I uh, worked uh, hand in hand with a, a good friend of mine. His name's Brooke McKenzie. Mm-hmm. He's a, a, a Burning Tree graduate, ranch alumni. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we supported a lot of families uh, with entry into Burning Tree in my previous position at New Method Wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to see individuals who otherwise may not be present living right now, mm-hmm. uh, go to their program, have an overwhelming, significant change, uh, be able to be in a position where they're living their life with integrity, honesty, um, and, um, you know, seeing a, a complete family systems change within their family. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, today I still get text messages and calls from these parents that we supported that are saying, Casey, thanks so much for, you know, helping us find Burning Tree because mm-hmm. it completely changed our lives. And then, you know, every few months it's here's little Jimmy's, uh, you know, baby girl. We're just celebrating the birth of our grandchild as a result of his commitment to recovery right. and the experience provided at Burning Tree. We get to celebrate these moments now. Right. And so um, I had reached a point in my in my career in behavioral health care where, um, you know, I'm privileged to do a lot of things for our community. Um, I've got wonderful friends that work in our field throughout the country Mm -hmm. Um, here in California. I'm committed to professional associations nationally. Mm -hmm. I sit on the uh, NADAC public policy committee. I do talk about that a little bit. What is NADAC? So that's the National Association of Alcohol and Drug Counselors. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, in 2019, a group of us went to Washington, D.C. to do some advocacy at the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers Conference. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was a privilege to go and represent our organization and engage with the field of providers that were there and uh, professionals supporting people across the country. Sure. But in addition to just the conference, we had a National Hill Day where we could go and make appointments with our senators and House of Representatives and talk about a set of issues that were affecting behavioral health care in our community's ability to uh, uh, enroll in services with providers. Okay. Right. So now stepping out into a broader thing about what can we do for our community? Right. So obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. We just talked about an overwhelming amount of people that need support for mental health, for substance abuse, mm-hmm. amongst other behavioral health issues. And we still have a long way to go when it comes to advocating for those individuals that don't even know that they need that support right now. Yes. So we were talking about, you know, uh, improving uh, mental health parity law. We were talking about uh, the opioid pandemic Mm -hmm. uh, and the overwhelming uh, uh, efforts the government had taken specifically for the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we need to look at addiction as a whole, mm-hmm. right? Opioid epidemic is certainly can be a large portion of that. I fit within that, but not everybody does. Right. And we shouldn't look at just the substances, but we should look at this overwhelming issue that we have as a country. We also talked about improving uh, the ethics within our profession. And, um, you know, since that point in time, when we went and advocated for those things, in California, we passed SB 855, mm-hmm. which improved our mental health uh, parity uh, enforcement in our state. Mm-hmm. We also uh, passed body brokering laws here in the state of California, which Accru- improved our ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we also, uh, since that point in time, were able to allocate a lot of financial resource 
from our government and state for uh, facilities and for behavioral health care in our communities. Mm -hmm. So they were all wins, you know. So last year in 2020. And this is as a result of you guys going to Washington? Is that was that the onset? Was that what began this? That was the result. I believe that our efforts in Washington helped. Mm-hmm. And I believe that our continued efforts from that point forward have helped. Great. And so essentially what it did was show us as a professionals community that if we are invested in seeing a difference within our community and we are willing to designate a small bit of our time to advocate for patients' rights amongst other things that affect behavioral health care agencies mm-hmm. within our country, certainly here in the state and locally, um, then we can find great success and we can be a part of that charge and we can participate in legislation that affects behavioral health care communities. So at that point in time, after experiencing that, uh, a group of us came back and created the California Alliance for State Advocacy here in California. Mm-hmm. And we just celebrated our first year That's of being ca- in Casa. CASA. Yep, C-A-S-A. Mm-hmm. And we've got... Facebook and Instagram, and we've got our own website up, and we've got a service board that um, sits at each of our meetings. And essentially, what we do is a monthly networking meeting where we can bring professionals together throughout the community. And most of the time, our efforts are focused on educating our membership on the importance of advocacy, nonprofit associations, and engaging in relationships with legislators. Um, So, we've got great goals and ambitions over this next year. With that, and again, we just uh, celebrated our first year of that, and our next meeting is going to be on December 10th Mm -hmm. uh, in Ladera Ranch, and we'll we'll be having an addiction professionals comedy show Mm -hmm. that will feature our friend uh, Benji Fukanen Mm -hmm. from the Gooden Center. Yes. um, And uh, and another comedian, Aaron uh, Patrick, who will be uh, performing for the professionals there. So it'll be a lot of fun. Um, so you're carrying the message a lot more than just in a 12 step community. Yeah. I mean, you know, I started with this aspect of being comfortable in the group. Mm -hmm. You know, I started sponsoring people at about 10 months sober, Mm -hmm. got a bunch of great guys that I, I sponsor now that have changed their life as a result of this commitment. Sure. You know, they're all, you know, getting married, having kids, having great jobs. You know, we're talking about guys that, you know, were in treatment, you know, came here with a suitcase. right? Right. Um, and, uh, so it's been amazing to see that difference. And then, um, you know, my sponsor was always really, um, wanted me to have area service commitments. And so I became accustomed to doing things for, in a community level. And then when I started working in behavioral health care, you know, I got to know the field. I was certainly put in positions that I earned positions, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, that put me uh, in a public spotlight here in Orange County. And then we took that into a national thing. And, uh, you know, I get the privilege of supporting the community in AA and in our field. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a firm believer of what we can do together. We can do better. Right. Just like in AA, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, no one person is more important than the community. Yes. Um, and, you know, we really need a community of providers that are committed to working together to ensure that um, the overwhelming need of the community is met. Mm. Right. And so um, as a result of all those kind of things, I recently accepted a position on uh, NADAC's public policy board. It's a national board. I also serve as a membership uh, 
committee member for NATAP. So those are some fun volunteer positions that I get the privilege of doing. And it works in the same way as AA, like, right? Like mm-hmm. you asked me to show up, we put a time together, I show up. You That's know? right. You asked me to speak at a meeting. If I'm here and I'm available, I'll be there, right? I get the privilege of sharing that message with people mm-hmm. today. Um, it's not something that I have to do. It's definitely something that I get to do, right? And what I think of is, man, I'm grateful that there were people to do that there for me right? There's no amount of work that I can do to ever be able to repay what AA has done for me or even the industry that I work in has mm-hmm. done for me, right? There were, there's all sorts of guys that have been doing this thing in the industry for 20, 30 years that I'm good friends with today that give me their knowledge for fun and for free. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of guys in AA that have been sober for 35, 40 years that I go to meetings with on a weekly basis that have shown me how to act and engage as a man in recovery, mm-hmm. right? Um, that I get to teach those things to other people and that I get to teach those to my industry peers uh, from my industry, you know, position. So married now? Married. Yes. Kids married five years. I have two children from my previous marriage. Mm-hmm. They are 19 and 17. My son is in his first year of college. Mm-hmm. He's a big motocross guy, so he's going to uh, school to get accreditations on different mechanical training. Mm -hmm. And my daughter will be the one that breaks the bank. Uh, Mm -hmm. She is interested in being a psychiatrist, so I'm excited about that for her. And, you know, she's applying for schools right now, and, um, you know, I'm going to be supporting her in doing that. My wife of five years is Haley, and she lives here with me and our dog Sparty in Dana Point uh, in Lantern District. And, uh, you know, uh, each year continues to get better. Love her dearly. Love her family. Uh, everybody that meets her loves her. So, How cool. This is what I want to say. We'll close out with this. This is amazing to me that you were once a – did you do heroin too? Or was it just yeah. – okay, an IV opiate addict – that has taken it so far to going and advocating, you know, to lobbies to, to people in, in Washington and completely transform your life. You're, you're one of the ones that a lot of people call me for help. They, they will often ask me for a connection to somebody, whether it be for mental health or addiction or whatever, nationally, right? I get a lot of calls. You're the one of, one of the ones I can always turn to and, and ask you, do you know an outpatient in like, South Carolina, South Carolina or something like that. And within seconds, within minutes, I will get a a response. And you don't know like how many people's lives you're actually affecting and touching because I'll make a connection with those people. And then that person goes there. And that's because you, you've got this, this reach, this reach of like, and I I know a lot of efforts gone into this. You, you, you're definitely um, a person that I look up to. I, I enjoy our friendship um, you know, I love how serious you took your recovery. You just took eight years. You know, what really stands out to me more than anything is, um, it was eight years, correct? I got nine years on next Monday. Oh, nine years. Yeah. But I got to make it till next Monday. Well, you will make it till next Monday. I'm pretty sure. I had an old timer one time tell me when I told him, if I make it to this day, he said, no, when you make it. When I make it. Yeah. So, so nine years is going to, is it really been that fast that this went by? Didn't you take Gosh, a chip and your dad, like you gave it to your dad? Every year I give my chip to my dad. Yes. Has it and been a year almost? Golly, because I, I did, took that. I did that one. I spoke at Monks and Drunks. Was it? Yeah. It was a year ago. Has it been a whole year already? Golly, my God! This thing goes by quick, doesn't it? I can't. So I got to tell the story since we're here. Sure, right? tell the so story. So obviously, what we've talked about today, everybody has an understanding of 
you know, what my family means to me and the commitment that they made mm -hmm. to ensure that I could have this opportunity in recovery. Right. And so uh, each year that I, you know, go to my meetings and I take my chips and I put on a suit and I share my experience and strength and hope, yes. they give you a chip for that. Right. Yes. And so each year that I get a chip, I, sh I send that chip to my dad um, or I give it to him if he's present right there. Mm -hmm. And each year he really looks forward to that. And um, no matter where my dad is, uh, I think he's up in Carson somewhere today, right. uh, but tomorrow he'll be in Florida or Michigan, or he's been in Beijing, China or Germany or wherever it is, right. everywhere he goes, that chip is in his pocket, uh, from the time he wakes up and puts his jeans on to the time he goes to sleep. He's always got it. He's always got it. He could be walking by right here and you know, he'd, he'd show it to you and it's probably the thing he's most proud of, you know, when we talked about the investment that the, my family made in me, my dad's a, a big car guy, you know, he's worked in auto, auto engineering, manufacturing his whole life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he grew up in, you know, the sixties, seventies when, you know, the hot rods were the big thing. Sure. And he's always wanted to have a Corvette, like a 69 Corvette, you nice. know, a specific one he really wants. And I think that maybe someday he still will have it. And, you know, I was long, way into my recovery. I'd been recovered for a few years. And, and I said, Hey dad, what, a, what, uh, what a, are you doing with this Corvette? I mean, I know that you've always really wanted one. Are you going to go ahead and get this Corvette now that yeah. you're going to retire? Um, and he says, Casey, you're my Corvette. <laughs> you are the prize possession. Corvette. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've done FaceTimes with him where he's been in all areas of the country and he'll pull the coin out and show it to me. And he share, he shows that and shares that with other people with pride. Um, That's you know, everything to me. Yeah. That within itself is everything. It means a lot. It means a lot to me. And so I still, uh, today still have the same responsibility that I did, uh, when I was on the door of that treatment program, you know, and he was signing that check to them to save my life. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, I still have to be committed to this thing, recovery, one day at a time. Everybody starts with one day. Mm -hmm. You know, world record for sobriety, 24 hours. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I slept in just a little bit today. <laughs> I knew I was going to see you, so you might be a little bit ahead of me. Awesome. What an honor and privilege it was to have you on, on the corner today. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Such a Great. good man. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks to all that tuned in today, and uh, I'm going to have to put that in my calendar that you're taking nine years in a few days. All right. Much love to everybody. Have a good day. Bye, guys.